Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fully Scored. I'm Matthew Frost, and later in this episode I'll be joined by Paul Sharman. Paul will be continuing his analysis of Symphony of Thanksgiving by Dean Goffin. We started the analysis in our previous episode, so I'd thoroughly recommend listening to that part first for things to make more sense. Or listen to this part first and feel like a little rebel. It really is up to you. We look forward to hearing from Paul shortly, but first it gives me great pleasure to welcome once again Dr Kenneth Downey to the podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a fan of brass bands, so need no introduction for Ken. But, just in case, Ken is one of the most prolific and respected brass band composers both in Salvation Army banding and the wider brass band movement. Since first being published by the Salvation Army in the 1970s, Ken has had approximately 100 works published since by the Army alone. Many of these compositions have gone on to become iconic and revered pieces, such as Prince Warp Variations, Rejoice the Lord is King, King of Heaven and St Magnus, to name a few. As well as this legacy for major works, Ken has touched many people's lives with his devotional music. Pieces such as In Perfect Peace, Standing Somewhere in the Shadows and Stars of the Morning have a special place in many players' and listeners' hearts. I spoke with Ken back last summer in his Devonshire home with idyllic views over the River X. So today is our first in-person interview we've recorded since March 2020. For obvious reasons, although if you are listening to this podcast in 2120, you might need to get your history books out, if books even exist then. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr Kenneth Downey. Ken, how are you keeping? I'm keeping very well, thank you. Yes, for an old boy, you know. (laughs) No, I'm very grateful for good health. Fantastic. And we are so grateful that you're joining us in today's interview. I'm really looking forward to chatting to you, getting to know a bit more about your life and your music and your faith as well. So my first question, we're sat now and unfortunately the audience uh, listening to this won't be able to see. We've got a stunning view over the River X right now and we're recording in Exmouth. How did you get to be here in Exmouth? Well, we lived in Winchester for 30 years before moving here nine years ago. Um, We always knew that when we were nearing retirement, we would probably have to move from Winchester because we we needed to fund our retirement, really, having been self-employed for for many years. So I suppose the bottom line was was finance, Um, but many other reasons besides. We used to holiday down here. Uh, for, for many years and we grew to, to love the area uh, especially the coastal walks and so we thought uh, when the time comes we, we'll see what we can find and uh, property is quite a bit cheaper down here than in Winchester we didn't want to leave Winchester we, we loved especially the core there and it's a lovely place to live but uh, we prayed a lot about it and uh, it took about two years, I think, looking around when we were on holiday to find a, a little house just big enough. If I had an office in the garden, it's big enough for us. Um, so we've got the office in the garden. We do have a lovely view over the River X. And uh, so, yeah, nine years ago, just now, we moved and we're, we've been, yeah, very grateful to be here. Got very nice neighbours in this little cul-de-sac. Uh, we're well settled at the core in Exeter, just up the road. And um, yeah, all in all, we, we feel very blessed. So now going uh, a little bit back further in time and from the south coast to somewhere a little bit more northernly, um, mm-hmm. can you tell us about where you were born and grew up? Yes, well, I was uh, I was born at an early age, as they say, <laughs> just <laughs> after the war. That's the Second, second World War, I hasten to add. Um, Scotland's my home, um, so about 600 miles, I, I should think, north of here, is Greenock on the Clyde, and I always consider that my home. I was actually born in Glasgow, but I was two when we, we moved to Greenock, so that's that's where I remember life. Greenock Siddell is my home core. My parents uh, you know, were very busy in the core. My father was songs leader, my mother was co-cadet guardian. 
uh, my brother and I, you know, were taken to the army <laughs> automatically. Uh, obviously, grew to love it. Uh, well, my brother wasn't so keen, I have to say. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it was a lovely place to grow up. To grow up, and I, I, I was most reluctant to leave. Really, we left when I was sixteen. When my father's work moved from Glasgow down to Liverpool, we went to live in Southport. So yeah, Greenock is very important to me. I'm proud to be Scottish. I never tried to lose my accent, but I, I have done, of course, because uh, we don't have any relatives there anymore. We go on holiday from time to time. We lived in a tenement on the fourth floor in Greenock. Um, and it was wonderful. We, we had a nice view, not over the X, but over the Clyde. And um, everybody who lived in that tenement was a neighbour, was a friend really, you know. So uh, as little boys, we got a lot of presents at Christmas from everybody. It was that kind of really, really close uh, knit. Uh, we played in the street, played football and cricket in the street with lots of other children. It was a totally different world, yeah. And one of the things was that in the next close, the next tenement, was a piano teacher, Mr. Sanderson. And uh, one or two people in the corps went there for piano lessons. And I was sent there when I was seven um, to have piano lessons. And I, I mean, I never thought about it at the time, and I wasn't particularly keen, I suppose, to do it. But it must have involved quite a financial sacrifice for my parents. You know, there wasn't a lot of money around at all. Uh, we didn't have a car or a television or anything like that at that stage. But yeah, they must have seen it was important for me to have that opportunity. And uh, so I'm, I'm very, very grateful for all that. Um, my music, first music was there and at the core. I, I played in the YP band. I enjoyed that very much from about the same sort of age. And uh, I was in the sync company. And um Again, I didn't realise it at the time, but it was it was an unusual environment to grow up in musically at the core because, um, you know, you, you learn to play by ear. I, I was in the Sunday school, played choruses at the piano by ear, um, sometimes busking on instruments. We, we would, the YP band always played in the, in the juniors. And we also played in the senior band, really, from, from quite a young age because the senior band was about... I suppose about 25 strong but we were encouraged to play in with them in the evenings and um, and I didn't realise honestly until I went to university really what an amazing musical education I had had especially with oral training you know I didn't realise that people couldn't sing in harmony for example I also and this is probably far too long as an answer, actually. <laughs> but I do remember discovering the power of music as well in worship, in the meetings. From time to time, things would happen, uh, and the music was often fundamental to it, and the, the mood of a meeting would change, and the Holy Spirit, as I would say now, really took over. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm so grateful uh, that I learned not just about music, I remember I, I learned the place it has within worship, which of course has coloured my, my career, as it were, since then. Mm. And uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your further studies of music from that point onwards? Yes, I went to... Um, my father was never keen for me to study music as, as a, with, a, with a view to earning my living from it, I think. He, he would have preferred me to have gone into banking or the civil service or something. When we moved from uh, Scotland to England when I was 17, uh, I auditioned to go to the Royal, as it was called, Royal Northern College of Music. There were two separate music colleges in those days, the Northern College of Music, which I also auditioned for, and the Royal Northern College of Music. And so I went there for two years, and uh, then after that I went to Durham University for three years. So I really, yeah, I've had a really good, I've absolutely no excuse. <laughs> I've had a very good musical education. I'm very grateful for it. Years later, I took a doctorate at Salford, University of Salford, with Peter Graham, largely, uh, um, behind that. So that, that was a nice thing to do, you know, just to stretch my, my two brain cells a little bit more. So... 
Before we go on to talk about some more of your music, I'd just like to talk to you a little bit about your time as a music teacher. I believe um, you taught for uh, quite a while and ended up being head of music at Poole Grammar School. Did you enjoy those years of teaching? I did, yeah. Uh, From what I hear about schools now, I'm not sure that I would enjoy it as much now. But uh, yeah, when I left university, I I was very fortunate, really. A job came up at an independent boys boarding school with a Christian foundation near Southport where I lived and um, somebody said showed me the advert and I said why don't you apply for this well I hadn't gone to uh, do a one year's uh, teacher's training course or anything but I thought I'll just go and see you know (laughs) how it works out my father had just died um, at that time and my plans were all I had been planning to go to America to do some postgraduate stuff. And then my father died and I was just at the very end of my university time and I, it all seemed to be, would it be the right thing to go away now? And my brother was away in the Merchant Navy at sea and it, it didn't feel right. And this job came along. So I went along to sea and I ended up getting the job, which was um, very nice. So that, that was my first teaching post. I went to, to Bournemouth from there. Um, I became bandmaster at Boscombe, but I took over as head of music at a, a secondary school there. And then lastly to Poole and became head of music at the grammar school. So I had a nice variety, really. And um, I did find it rewarding. I felt that you, you had to teach music in school with a, with a missionary zeal <laughs> because not all the customers were that keen. Um, the ones that were keen, it was it was quite easy with. Um, but, you know, at Poole we had uh, a band. We had, um, actually, we had uh, some nice staff and, and student groups as well. Uh, some nice choirs. We had a, a, a sort of glee club <laughs> with staff and pupils. And so, yeah, I enjoyed my experience very much. So in... 1976, I believe, something else caught your eye and something shiny. Uh, you entered the jewellery business. Perhaps some might not think that's a logical leap from teaching music, but uh, could you tell us about that? Yeah, many people were baffled, I think. Um, I was at Boscombe in those days and um, at teaching at Poole Grammar School. But there was a, a chap in the band who started a jewellery business, uh, wholesale jewellery and antiques. And um, uh, to cut a long story short, he offered me a partnership in his business. And so, um, yeah, much to the uh, astonishment, I suppose, of many people, I decided that there was an offer I, I, I must try and see. I, I kind of always been reasonably interested in business. And I thought, if I don't have a go at this, you know, I, I, I may well regret it. And so I, yeah, I, I, I left my post and went in with him and um, I enjoyed working in jewellery. That particular venture did not work out very well and, uh, it, you know, it was one of those things. It was May 1976 and uh, I would have had to wait till September to, to get teaching again and probably not on a level I had been. Um, so I thought temporarily, rather than sell deck chairs on the on the beach in Bournemouth or ice cream or whatever, which I had done as a student in Southport, um, I'll I'll see how I can do on jewellery myself, and I ended up doing it for nearly thirty years. <laughs> yeah, it was a lovely trade to work in, and uh, I had no qualifications for doing it, but I just learned in the job, you know, and uh, enjoyed the challenge of of running a business. Getting up every Monday morning, knowing that you've got to find your money, find your income that week, um, hoping that you'll stay fit, because if you didn't, then there, there wouldn't be any money coming in. Um, knowing that if you have a holiday, well, you can have as many holidays as you like, but no one will pay you, <laughs> and uh, all those kind of things, you know. And I suppose for the last 10 years, we could see that the business would not be viable long term because we were essentially middle people. We were being squeezed all the time by retailers and um, we thought, where will we go from here? And uh, we prayed an awful lot about what we should 
what we should do and um, and then almost out of the blue really I, I was offered work in the music editorial department and so I ended up doing that alongside the jewellery for about three years so I, I could phase the jewellery business out. Patricia was often teaching piano, my wife uh, Patricia was often t teaching piano lessons. So uh, yeah we started with music and then we had business and, and teaching and then a business and then we come back to music so we've been back as musicians for the last 20 years I guess. Let's talk a little bit about your music now. Do you remember a specific moment where you got the composing bug or was it a period of time where you it piqued your interest? <laughs> I, I think it's been there really for a very long time there was no specific moment. I, I can remember that as a very young boy you know my father played euphonium in the band and the euphonium was at home and sometimes I'd pick it up and think I was playing, I was singing through the mouthpiece of course, you know. But it was usually bass solos of marches that grabbed my attention. Those are the things I remember. And I, I used to try to think of inventing my own bass solo, you know, but this would be really very young. And um, so I think that that's always been, been there. And as I said earlier, even if I had not had a formal music education, I suspect I would would have written. And the connection between the music and the, the church, the Salvation Army, was so strong at first. I mean, I really didn't know other musical repertoire, you know. I mean, I, I had a lot of catching up to do when I became a music student in the wider world of music. So it was really largely about the Salvation Army. So the pieces I heard, the songs to sing or the sing company sing, the band play, that was my musical uh, environment. And um, and as I said, I, I was getting a first-class oral education and not, not being aware of it. Uh, so for me, that that link has carried on. And so the, the music I write for the army, nearly every piece, I think, unless it's been a specific request for a specific occasion, it's usually just prompted by sitting in a meeting and we'll, we'll sing a song or I'll hear something and I'll make a little note at the back of my songbook to have a look at that and perhaps see it in a different light. And, and I think that's really gone for years. Um, it, it, yeah, prompted by being in worship. And um, I mean, I, in, in more recent years, I've, I've gained a reputation largely I think probably for, for a lot of devotional music you know but it wasn't like that originally it was uh, the whole spread of stuff but invariably prompted by what was going on in, in a meeting. Now is there a particular work of yours especially from your earlier composing years that you would now see as a real watershed moment in sort of honing your compositional style? Um, I think uh, yes, in a way, yeah. I think maybe the Joybringer, Festival March of Joybringer. It was very early. It was uh, I was in Southport when I wrote it. Um, but I, I was, I suppose, I was taken aback by the the reception it got. Bernard Adams recorded it with a staff band um, on an LP. <laughs> Do you remember them? Uh, like this would be nineteen seventy or something like that. Uh, and I, I, I was taken aback. And that incorporated my... Um... Jesus wants me for something. That was the first ever published piece sometime in the 60s. And... Um... That, that that became popular and somebody suggested that I should write it into a march and that march became the Joybringer. And they gave me confidence because I, I don't have a lot of confidence even now. And um, the impact of, of, of something you do, you know, when it encourages other people and and they, 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 they you know, I had many encouraging comments about, about all that. And I think, yeah, that probably set me up in a way. Now, this next question is probably quite a vague and a large question, but could you talk us through your usual compositional process? You know, when you, say, ask to write a piece of music, what, what do you do? What, uh, where do you start? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, partly I've answered that by, by saying that it's often prompted from something I hear in a meeting, a song or other. Um, in more recent times, especially, say, in the last 20 years when I was involved with the music department, I was often asked to write things, uh, and usually for the staff band or the staff songs, uh, and often for a particular events. So in that sense, a lot of those decisions are almost made for you. And, um, you know, the, if it's a big Albert Hall event, you know, it has to be a certain kind of thing. And um, so, but my process, the nitty gritty detail, hasn't changed much. Um, when I started writing, you know, in the 60s, uh, we didn't have computers or music programs. And... Um, I had a, a manuscript book. Uh, I would work next to the piano, uh, pencil, rubber. <laughs> um, and uh, that's still basically what I do. I don't write everything down and then put it on the computer now, which I used to, but I, I, I still have the, the nuts and bolts on manuscripts and work at the piano a bit. And then now, with the benefit of computer programs, you know, put it there, and if you've got the advantage of playback, or the disadvantage of it, depending on which way you look at it. Um, but so, yeah, the process, and I, I've kind of preached this to people, you know, young composers, that, that they really need to be in control of what they're doing. Make sure the harmony's in place. You can only really do that on a bit of manuscript. You can't really do that on a, on a, a band score on a computer. You, you, you'll you not get it right, you know. I, I remember having this conversation with Stenman Allen um, oh, a long time ago now, and uh, he, he'd got into computers, and then when we were having this conversation, he got rid of them again. Because no, no, it's much... It's much slower using a computer because you spend a lot of time fiddling about and you're, you know, and I know exactly what he means. And so basically my process is still manuscript paper with a pencil and uh, and and then transfer it to to a computer programme. Now, next question, again, probably quite a hard one to answer, but when you're writing your devotional music, you know, your music comes straight from your heart and there's a outward expression of your faith and, and it's very personal so from that sort of very intimate moment there bands all around the globe often go on to play your music in a very public way does that opening up and that vulnerability that you're exposing of yourself often make you nervous or yes. is it something you get used to no no it makes me nervous still um Yes, you're right. It's a very private business writing music. You know, I'm interested in lots of things in the world, lots of things I'd like to do. And um, and sometimes music gets in the way of, you know, like if it's a good match on television or something happening. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a monk. And, and I, you need to be, well, I need to be away from things to write my music. So having an office in the garden is perfect. So yes, it's a very private process. And, and it is a very public process, obviously, when it's performed. And um, I, I get nervous now if I go to hear a piece for the first time um, that those thoughts I've had are suddenly thrown out there um, to be uh, judged, listened to by other people. Um, I think it is yeah, still scary, even like uh, I used to be able to pop into ISB rehearsals quite a lot and Steve would be running a piece down, a new piece or something, and often I'd rather not be there for the first run down, you know, because it's um, it's still scary. Uh, I don't know what it is. Whether it's that, um, as as you get older and people can you have a reputation, and people expect a lot. I think that makes you you nervous too. You think, oh gosh, you know, they they, they expect a expectation level is raised and um, and that 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 can be scary you think, you know, how am I going to is this going to sound um, tired or am I running out of ideas or is this you know it, all, all sorts of things are in there really and yet no one asks you to write you know it, it's you're prompted to write most musicians don't write music you know, they're, they're happy to sing or play or listen. Uh, it's lovely. It was all, there's just this, like, minority of head cases 
<laughs> want to write music. No one asks, no one promises they'll publish or perform or anything. So we are driven to do it, I'm afraid. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I, in the context of, of my Christian faith, I, I put it down to the work of the Holy Spirit that you, you, you know, you're prompted to do things and you, know, you hope and pray that it will touch the heart. It will come from the heart and will touch somebody else's heart. And that is wonderfully rewarding, of course. Then your nerves go completely, you know. And if you get a phone call or somebody, or a, somebody writes something nice about it or an email or something, and you think, oh, I'm glad I did that, you know. It's given me a great sense of reward. So as well as writing a huge amount of music for Salvation Army bands over the years, you've also written a lot of music for contesting bands or is there often referred to outside bands from within the Salvation Army. Works such as St Magnus and Visions of Gerontius are absolute masterpieces. How do you approach writing a test piece like those two, for example, and how does that differ from writing a major work for the ISB? Hmm. I never went to contests. I was never really interested, and the idea of hearing a piece 20 times did not appeal to me. Um... So I was different in a way, in a way from a lot of brass band players. Um, and people would say to me, as I started to write a wider range of things within the Salvation Army and sort of became well-known, people would say, oh, they'll be after you to do a test piece and, and all the rest one day. And I, I used to say, well, um, I don't know. It's not an area I know anything about. But in my heart, I wondered whether I could do it, you know, because it, it, it would be very different. And, and obviously, eventually, those opportunities came. And I was completely green. Um, the first time I, I, w- I was asked was from Switzerland to write a Section 1 test piece for their national championships. And um, they had played some of my army music uh, in previous years, but they wanted something new. And, um, I mean, they asked me about a fee, and I didn't have a clue about the fee. I have no idea at all. And I, I said some sort of figure. I said, oh, gracious, no, we can do much better than that. <laughs> that hasn't happened as a rule, must it? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the challenge was laid down. And um, I think uh, when it came, I, 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 um, I wasn't really frightened in the end. Uh, I thought, well... It's only music. And, and I remembered Eric Ball. I got to know Eric Ball when I moved to Bournemouth. Um, and I was bandmaster at Boston. Eric came once a year to do a Fisherman's Walk bandstand and a rehearsal. And then beyond that, we had other links. And I used to go to his house quite a few times. But he, he talked to me about uh, writing for contest and bands. And his, his model really was, he just carried on writing the same music. And, and you look at some of his pieces and, and, and you can't say this is secular and this is sacred because this one's published by Smith & Company, this is published by the Salvation Army. In a way, his musical language, he just carried on doing what he did. And I th- for me, that was a great model because his music and his Christian witness, they just went wherever he went. And I think, yeah, you couldn't do it any better than that, really. The difference, the difference, as you ask the question, I'll try and get back to your question, is the sense of freedom, I think. Um, certainly doing big test pieces for championship section bands, I think you feel as a composer that you don't have to be restricted. Uh, technical demands can go up a notch or two, and they usually ask that's what they say. I mean, some of the commissions I've, I've done, they say it has to be very difficult to play. <laughs> and I think, well, that, that's kind of strange because it's nothing to do with musical considerations. I suppose the best composers are, are able to merge the two requirements, I suppose. Um, but I just felt, yeah, well, if I'm going to write some Magnus or, you know, whatever it is, um, I'll, I'll write it and they'll find a way to play it. And they do. They always do. Now, all the way through your compositional output so far, um, from earlier works such as Pridsort Variations to more recent works like Jehovah Nissi, your music always captures the imagination by offering something innovative, particularly harmonically. Is that something that you consciously think about when you're writing, or is that just your style? The thing has become part of my style, really, yeah. Harmony excites me. 
Um, I've said before, and, and I've had to do various seminars and things on this subject since COVID came along. <laughs> um, I think, you know, harmony has a physical impact on some people. You know, just to, I could play a hymn tune to you now, and, and I, I could use one chord in that whole hymn tune. And for some people, if there's a hundred people listen to it, some people would have a, a physical effect when that chord came along. Not everybody. And I'd, I'd love someone to write a PhD on that one day as to what happens and why. There's something in the brain, you know, uh, quite a lot of people are, are affected that way. And, uh, you know, I can remember hearing certain chords for the first time and uh, and it having that kind of effect on me and... Uh, um, and I think that's probably something I've homed in on. Um, and as I said earlier, especially when you're dealing with uh, a tune like a hymn tune that people think they know what the harmony should be because that's all they've ever heard. And if they then hear something different, you know, it's quite, it can be quite a powerful thing. Fascinating to hear. Now, last couple of questions here. Have you got any gems of advice for young composers out there or aspiring composers don't have to just be young no no well I, I would still say um, the method of writing be in control of what you're doing don't let the computer control you lots of things can sound good or convincing or easy to perform on a computer but they have to be played or sung by human beings who have to breathe <laughs> and enunciate and articulate and so be in control uh, and the best way to do that for me is, is if you are a keyboard player you know, to, to work at things and make sure your harmonies are right um, get performances if you can I think the fastest way to learn is to hear what you've written uh, and then counterbalance that by, by seeing the scores of things that really work for you and see how that composer has done it. You know, why do I like that? Why does this really work? What has he done with this score here for band? You know, why does this really sound well? Or oh, classical scores, you know, look at Mozart, look at Brahms, look at Beethoven, look at Stravinsky. See what, see what they do. Get the scores, find out why it works and learn from it. My final question for you. Throughout your life, how have music and faith interplayed? Yeah, they've been intertwined for a long time. Uh, probably as far as I, I can remember. Um, I, I don't think I could worship in a church where I didn't enjoy the music. Um, I think that that's probably not a good thing to say, really, but it's probably true for me now that the music is, is very important. And, um, and then when a composer has the joy of writing music which touches somebody else, you know, there's a huge responsibility and also a huge sense of reward for you so yeah they're, they're really intertwined and, and have been for many years uh, I mean I, I have to work hard on my um, I'm trying to memorise scripture these days I've been trying for three or four years now I work hard on that and both of us work hard on Bible study we have a house group and we have various other things there's lots of aspects of the faith that one has to work out the, the sheer discipline of public worship and all those sort of things. So they're not really tied up with the music. There's plenty of other aspects you have to work at as a Christian to, 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 to grow your faith. But music is definitely a great help, a great help, and has been really all, all the way, yeah, right for, from the beginning. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your openness there and those real thank blessings. Yeah. So just to finish off and uh, change the mood, Ever so slightly, uh, I've got a few quirky quickfire questions for you. Um, and these are going to be some more sensible and some perhaps a little bit off the wall. I always like to try and uh, find a question you've never been asked before or probably never will again. So let's start off fairly down the line. Have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer? They change, that's the trouble. There's no simple answer to that. It would have been Eric Ball in, in the early days. Uh, probably the one who doesn't change, Wilfred Heaton. 
Now, if you thought that was a harder question, uh, this next one might be a challenge. Have you got a favourite Salvation Army band piece? Again, it changes a bit, but Eternal Presence. Outball. Excellent stuff, one of mine too. Very good. Favourite symphony? Any of the Brahms Four symphonies. Excellent stuff. Now, um, as I look out to the window, as I said earlier, we can see the River X. If you were wanting to cross the river, uh, what would your first choice aquatic vessel be? <laughs> I'd use the little ferry here. You <laughs> <laughs> won't get me on a paddle board or anything. <laughs> Have you got a favourite passage of scripture? Yes, probably Romans 8. Um, at a crucial time of our lives, Patricia and myself, we, we went to church. Uh, we were feeling very condemned and, and going through the, the throes of divorce and um, uh, rebuilding our lives. And uh, we didn't know what we'd hear and how we'd feel. And uh, this was in Southport. We'd been up to tell my mother what was happening. And um, the, the minister in this Anglican church, his sermon was from Romans 8, and it was nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you for that. T-Rex or Diplodocus? T-Rex. Heinz or Hellman's mayonnaise? Oh, Hellman's. If you were taking a penalty to try and win the World Cup, whereabouts in the goal would you aim? I'd go straight down the middle as hard as possible. <laughs> Great stuff. We'll put that to the test <laughs> in a little bit. Um, have you got a favourite Scotsman? Oh, yeah, Kenny Dalgleish, on for all sorts of reasons, including his football skills. Okay, uh, nicest looking vegetable, raw. Raw, oh, tomato. I don't, mm. I don't like them grilled. I love them raw. Excellent. And finally, as we are in Devon, uh, jam on top or cream on top of a scone? Oh, it has to be jam on top. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, thank you so much, Ken, for your time. It's really great to speak to you yeah, and to pleasure. get to know you. It's a pleasure. You're a very genial host. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> thank you once again, Ken, for your words. As with all our guests, it really is a privilege to spend time speaking with you and learning a bit more about your life, music and faith. Now, as I said earlier, it's time to welcome back Paul Sharman to continue his analysis of Symphony of Thanksgiving. For those following the score, we'll be picking up this analysis from letter J. If you don't have a score and do wish to follow along with the score, they are available to purchase on the Salvation Army Music Index, or Sammy for short. So at section J, as you spoke about in this sonata form, we enter our development section. And I believe this uh, little melody here is based around Come Ye Thankful People. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, so in this section, he, he, he uses the tune Come Ye Thankful People Come. Um, and it really is very much, he hasn't really done much um, adding to this tune. If you look through the tune, it's actually more or less the tune in, in, in the style, in this scherzo style very delicate um, that, that he wanted to use um, throughout here. Um, so he, he plays it through once with just a very small band, with just a couple of cornets and a trombone, with little interjections from the soprano first and second cornets later on. And then he sort of picks it up at section K. Um, we're adding other little triplets into it, ornamenting some of the tune, little bits that have gone on before, and adding people in. Very, very, sounds very intricate and um, must obviously got to be very delicately played to make it work. And um, it's, a, it's a nice little, nice little setting. while often in these scores you know when you get to St Philip it's got it's got the the, the um, reference to the tune and the song 
here it doesn't have it, even though it is, cl is clearly come you thankful people come for some reason um, in this section, they don't actually mark that, but, um, but it is very much um, that tune that he has worked and ornamented um, throughout section J and K. And uh, certainly that solo cornet line at K is one of those where you need to have practiced your lip flexibilities to get your chops <laughs> around that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's all very delicate through there. And then all of a sudden, this note before L, fortissimo, out of nowhere. We've had the piano, delicate, staccato, crotchets, and now this big note from, uh, from almost the full band at fortissimo takes us into section L. And at section L, all this material from L to M is taken from Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. So we start off in, at L in the horns with that, with that opening reference. Then they play it again, tone higher. And then the cornets, and then the full band. Each time lifting up in, 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 uh, in key. Um, so you go C, D, um, E, F, then F sharp. Um, so it, again, giving that feeling of moving forward each time. And that sort of nice move where he gives the fortissimo on the last beat every time, um, which is a really, you know, really good um, device to use there every single time. And as well as moving up in pitch, the distance between those fortissimos becomes less and less as we're building and, and the tension builds through there. And it almost, when you get to the 3-2 bar um, in the Subito Adagio there, that 3-2 bar gives that sense of relief. where it's a little bit slower, a little bit more time, but still based on that falling pattern from um, Praise My Soul um, through that section. And then we pick it back up in the 2-2, back into the skirt sando feel, uh, four bars before M. And then at section M, sort of to finish off this development section, we, it's just a... Uh, a reprise really of the opening section, um, section J, uh, with a few more instruments added in and then gradually bringing it down to the number of instruments that um, started that section off. So at section N, we have the start of our recapitulation and we have our motif right from the top of the music again. Could you talk us through this section again, perhaps a few of the differences in the way that this is approached this time round? It's again the bases that are different in this section at N. We have this triplet um, upward movement from the euphonium and the basses in that first bar. The baritones are now back to being on the beat with everybody else. Um, but it's, again, a very slightly diff different bass line. Other than that, af after bar three, I believe it is the same. Um, it is the same as the opening, um, eight bars. Um, we haven't got the syncopated baritones and bass part this time. It's back to as it was um, at the opening. Now, when we get to O, we come back to this bridge section. And um, this time, when I said it was quite simple in texture, um, the first time we heard this bridge passage, um, it very much now is, is not very straightforward. It's, it's, it's very, um, this canonic imitation that we have through this section where the, the theme enters on the half bar. So first of all, in the baritone euphonium, then the solar cornets come in the next bit then the second baritone and the E-flat basses, then the horns, um, all at two beat intervals, um, imitating each other in that, in that style. And that carries all the way through until four bars um, before letter P. So, you know, whereas it was straightforward, almost tune and that sort of um, block chordal really accompaniment, this time it is really, really intricate writing. 
um, that he uses and, and that sort of imitation that he uses throughout throughout the piece. And that builds up until all of a sudden, one, two, three, four bars before P, we come back together and back together in that sort of rhythmic unison um, building into section P. And at P, we have yet another um, presentation of the first subject, again, different. So again, we have the baritones on the half, on the, on the second and fourth beat move instead of on the first and third. And the basses again have something different. And I think the style of this rhythm is taken from that bridge passage where you've got the two slurred quavers, two tongue quavers um, that, that we then take for those four bars through that section. So that takes us on to section Q and very much like the original exposition, the texture comes back a bit here and we have this expansive line. Could you talk us through this section? Yeah, so at, at Q, we come back to that second subject, which was heard in the um, in soprano in the exposition. And in the, in the exposition, this was in the dominant. Um, so it was in G at that point. Now we're, we're back in the tonic, C major. Um, and um, the, the solo cornet now takes the melody rather than the um, rather than soprano, uh, which is then repeated in the horns. Mark Sonoramente is a very you know, sonorous sound throughout that section um, when they come in just before R. Those arpeggiate figures again in the baritone, so cornet come in during R. And then um, the fourth and fifth bars in R with the Praise My Soul, the octaves coming back in again um, there as, as they did earlier on. And then a few bars later, before we build up into the confioco at letter S. In this coda S, there is a lot going on. In the solo cornets and in the silent first horns, we have this um, the reference to praise my soul again in the in, this, in the minor key. We have the theme from the youth part in section D. If we remember back to then, um, in the trombones and in the copied in the back row cornets and flugel um, coming through there. Uh, we also have the percussion and the basses giving us the rhythm of the opening first subject throughout that section which comes a little pedal moment throughout this this whole section that is those eight bars are repeated and build up into the chords before section t where we have these falling diminished chords um, taking us down the trombones give us the, again those four notes of praise my soul um, in six bars before T. And then interestingly, four bars before T in the basses and youth, he uses this little passage there, which is actually just the melody line from Praise My Soul. Um, if you look at that, those, those four bars there, but it's just um, the melody line of Praise My Soul, taking us into this glorious setting of, of Praise My Soul that, that we get at section T. It's a really interesting setting, isn't it? Almost treated like a passacaglia with this constantly mm. moving bass line. Can you just talk us through a little bit more of the... Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, I think this is when I was, you know, as a teenager, as a young musician listening to this, that's what really grabbed me about this setting. And the fact that and you look at the score and the, the, top, the top half or the top two thirds of the band just looks so straightforward, these minims and this chorale uh, setting. But what is going on in the euphonium bass is just is just wonderful, and I'm, I'm sure as a, 
I've never been a euphony more a bass player, but you've got to enjoy playing that through that little section. You know, particularly when we get to bar nine and this building up through there, that is just harmonically, that's just lifting it. And it's, you know, it's really spurring us on to, to get to where we want to go. And I think it's just a, it's just a glorious setting, which continues once we get to the forte and it's a big sound from the band there. Even there, the basses have got very interesting um, part to go um, through that, which takes us into you, where we repeat um, the tune. Um, again, interestingly, those those three three notes into you are taken from the euphonium theme earlier on again, which comes comes back once more in those three notes there, and we get now this big setting of um, praise my soul. But he's not content with just having a big setting. What he very cleverly does now through this section is, in, first of all, intersperses the four bars, eight bars of the first subject um, in with it, over the top of it, um, and it just seamlessly works as one, uh, one glorious setting um, of that tune now. <laughs> V is interesting because he's got the trombones on the right up there on their high on their C's and B's A's up top of their register along with the flugel and the horns giving that in that intensity to that but just giving such a glorious sound for those eight bars before V and then into V that I mean that just majestic where praise him praise him comes through with these um the scales and the flourishes going upwards there just you know and that is to listen to and to play is just such a glorious, um, glorious thing to have, to listen to um, through that section. I know as a cornet player, the V bar seven, eight, and V is it? Those semiquavers are always really fiendish to to shovel in as at the speed it's going, but it, it's so enjoyable to do um, there. <laughs> And again, halfway through V, we've got lots going on thematically as well still. You know, right to the end is keeping that interest going. So in bar five of V, we've got that subsidiary theme again in the baritones. Starting from bar seven in V, the basses and the euphonium are playing Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, beginning of that tune there. And then as we get to six bars before W, we have in the soprano and the lower horns, we have Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. In the back row cornets, bar baritones and trombones, we have Come You Thankful People Come, um, playing through that section, as well as, as I've already said, the Praise My Soul um, in the basses and in the euphonium, um, which then brings us to that um, climax at W, where all of a sudden we're, we're shouting praise and give to Jesus glory um, as that comes in at W, and then that is passed around the band um almost in that it sort of falls down from that sort of top c in the sort of corner it's a w to a very low c major chord about by seven or eight and then we're building up um the successive octaves in um in c major towards the end um, and those last eight but it's all just in c major just one c major chord then up the octave and then up the octave and it just builds and builds and builds um, towards that magnificent ending. majestic that ending it almost catches you off guard at w the way it sort of transitions through the harmony but then as you said very staunchly back into c major mm. to end 
For those listening and are interested, the clips and excerpts that we were using there were taken from the international staff band Blazon CD. Thanks, Paul. A delight to have you on the podcast once again, and I'm sure it won't be the last time we hear from you on here. Now it's time for our relatively new segment, Arid Island Album. Each episode, we have a different guest, and I ask them that age-old question. If you were stuck on an arid and deserted island and could only take one album with you, what would it be and why? For this segment, we welcome Andrew Wainwright. Andrew is fast becoming an increasingly well-known composer within the Salvation Army and the wider brass band world, both in the US and the UK. Well, Andrew, thank you ever so much for joining for our third part of Arid Island Albums. How are you keeping? Yeah, doing very well, thanks. Um, my parents arrived from the UK yesterday, so uh, really nice to have them with us. Uh, but we're here in sunny Dallas and uh, looking forward to a couple of weeks together. Fantastic. So you're coming from Dallas. How long have you been in Dallas for? We've been here six or seven years now. Um, so moved down here to work in the music department for the Salvation Army uh, with my wife, Laura, and uh, really enjoying life here. Fantastic. And many listeners will uh, certainly recognise your name increasingly, more so over the last few years from the top right-hand corner of the music. When did you first get into composition? Well, it was back in Zimbabwe, actually. Um, I lived there as a, as a kid. And um, I think we we're on holiday um, and my dad uh, said to me, why don't you just go and scribble some notes on a page? Because I think I was bored and had nothing to do. Um, so it wasn't really composing, but it was um, scribbling a few notes of I'll go in the strength of the Lord. And that's what really started it off. But it was moving back to the UK a few years later that I really got into it and um, started to compose for a brass band and was encouraged by a number of composers really like Ray Bowes and Robert Redhead and Ken Downey, uh, Ray Stemmen Allen, got the chance to meet them um, in my teens and they were really encouraging to me so that's where it all started really. Fantastic and before we ask the important question for this segment could you just tell us a little bit more about your your day job and your role that you're doing at the bank? Well, um, a couple of years ago, I actually went freelance. Um, so I mainly focus on graphic design and composing and arranging, um, but basically work on anything that comes in. So there's quite a, a wide variety of, of work that comes in. Um, recently, I've done some web design as well. I did a, a website for James Fountain. Um, so that was good fun. Um, so looking to get more into that side of things as well. Um, but I really love the variety of just going from one thing to another and, and working with musicians from around the world, really. Fantastic. Sounds really exciting. And I'm sure that many people have seen your artwork on the front of albums and maybe not even realised it came from you. But uh, yeah, maybe. There we go. Our listeners can do some research now. <laughs> so this brings us on to the all important question. If you were stranded on an arid and deserted island, what album would you take with you and why? Well, it's been really difficult to narrow down, actually, to just one album, as there are so many I'd like to choose. Um, my initial thoughts were to go with the first ever album that got me into brass banding, which was Sounds of Joy by the Canadian Star Band. Um, as a young boy living in Zimbabwe, we used to listen to that cassette tape over and over. You probably don't remember cassettes, Matthew, do you? Just about, yeah, I'm on the cusp of them uh, wearing out and stretching and snapping. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but that was a good one. Um, but I'm not going to go with that, actually. I'm going to go with Manuscripts by the ISB, which was released back in 1997. Um, first thing I think of with this album is actually the iconic cover of the, the Royal Albert Hall. It was an empty Royal Albert Hall. Um, I'm probably biased with this being a graphic designer, but I always think that an album cover can really help set the scene and get you inside the essence of a recording. And I think this does that particularly well. I always used to think that uh, the CD was actually recorded in the Albert Hall, but it was actually recorded at Air Lindhurst Studios in Hampstead. Um, but I think what the cover really refers to is the manuscripts that were performed by the ISB for the first time at Albert Hall occasions. Uh, it's also fairly unique in that it was, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the first SA band album to include a CD-ROM multimedia presentation. 
which included player profiles, interviews, and behind the scenes footage. And what I also remember is that David Dawes missed uh, one of the recording sessions as his wife was going into labor. So Gary Fountain stepped in on Principal Cornet and had to fill in on the Cornet solo in Isaiah 40. Uh, so no pressure there. Uh, but as you can imagine, Gary did a fabulous job. In terms of the repertoire, it was all music that the ISB had played in manuscript. Um, and of course, uh, these were the days before software programs, so it all would have been handwritten. There's also a highly diverse range of music with something for everyone. So you've got high octane stuff like Kevin Norbury's Gaudete, uh, Andrew Bly's Shine Down. Uh, you've got a bit of South American flavor with uh, the Brazil 75 March and Brenton Broadstock's Born to Battle, which you don't hear very often, but it's quite a unique piece of music. And then you've got three uh, soloists at the top of their game. So David Dawes, Andrew Justice and Derek Kane. Uh, there's some beautiful reflective numbers which really bring the listener closer to God, such as Middle of the Traffic. I can never pr pronounce the next one, but I think it's Obard by Kevin Norbury and Where I Am. Uh, but for me, the standout tracks are Isaiah 40, which I think was the Nationals test piece the year before and is amazingly des descriptive music. Uh, and the finale from the Sanson Organ Symphony which is such a test for any band, but it's just a perfect way to conclude an album. Uh, and the, the playing throughout, of course, is stellar and expertly directed by Steve Cobb. So for me, Manuscripts uh, stands out as being a recording that has everything. That's why I've, that's my uh, chosen album. Fantastic. And a great choice. One of my favourites as well. Thanks, Andrew. Now it's time for a much older segment, Band Mastermind. Ever since episode one was released all the way back in January 2020, Andrew Blythe has been at the top of the leaderboard. Could this be the day that Andrew concedes that crown? Let's see if Dr Kenneth Downey can be the one to wrestle it from him. This brings us on to our final section of the podcast, and once I'm, once again, I'm joined by Ken Downey. Ken, we're going to be putting your band knowledge to the test <laughs> here in Band Mastermind. Just a quick overview of the rules for those that might not have heard this before. You'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band trivia questions as you can. If you don't know, feel free to say pass, but we'll tot up your score at the end. So... Kenneth Downey, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? I am. Excellent. Then your time starts now. What is the name of the Northern Irish composer whose titles include Come Home and Everybody Should Know? David Catherwood. Correct. What famous pop group did Norwich Sizzle USA band feature the music of on a CD recording? Bass. Okay. Uh, what is the name of the melody that is featured during the middle slow movement of Peter Graham's Renaissance? The Joy Web one. Might need to be a bit more specific, or do you want to pass? <laughs> pass. Okay. In what year was Wilfred Heaton's Praise published? 47. So, so close, but not quite. Who wrote the Cornet solo, Life's Pageant? Terry Camsey. Correct. For how many years was trumpeter Philip Smith in the New York Philharmonic Orchestra? Not that many. It was Chicago. Oh, no, it was the other way around. Oh, 30 years. Again, close, but not quite, I'm afraid. Released in 2020, the album Unified was recorded half by the Household Troops Band and half by which other Salvation Army nice. Brass Band? Okay. Uh, Dorothy Gates' new work, The Glory of Jehovah, is based on which book of the Bible? Genesis. Uh, incorrect, I'm afraid. Can you name the female vocalist the Melbourne staff band have recorded three albums with? Shit, no, I've heard that. No, I can't remember. Okay, no worries. The pressure of Bandmaster. <laughs> the March Norwich Citadel was written by the grandfather of which current... Oh, the time is up, but I'll finish this question. The March Norwich Citadel was written by the grandfather of which current published Salvation Army composer? Paul Drury. Correct. So, that yeah. gives you... It's pretty <laughs> Well, actually, he's going to be middle of the road for Ben Mastermind, with a grand total of three correct. Three, my 
So, not bad. I'll just go through the answers to the ones mm. you didn't quite get, and you may kick yourself for a couple of these as you were so close. Yeah. Uh, the famous pop yeah, group, yeah. the Norwich Citadel USA, uh, band featured on a CD recording was The Beatles. The Beatles' theology was the CD. Uh, the name of the melody that's featured during the middle snow movement of Peter Graham's Renaissance coming to our world is absolutely yeah. coming to our worlds, but no points now, I'm afraid. No, 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 yeah, uh, You were two years out with a year that Heaton's Press, it was 49 yeah. indeed. Suppression, yeah. yeah. it, it does things to your head, doesn't it? <laughs> and uh, Phil yeah. Smith was in the New York Philharmonic for 36 years. 36 years so, just yeah. a couple more. Uh, so in 2020, the album Unified was released and it was recorded half by the Household Troops Band and the other half was by the Amsterdam Staff Band. Uh, Dorothy Gates' music, The Glory of Jehovah, is based on Exodus. So very close there with Genesis indeed. And the final one, the female vocalist that the Melbourne Staff Band recorded three albums with was Sylvie Palladino. Well, maybe our next guest will be the one... Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter to keep up to date with the latest fully scored news. Another way to keep up to date is to subscribe to our podcast if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That way, as soon as a new episode is released, you'll get a little notification and be one of the first people in the world to have a listen. Then you can feel really special. Also, if you're listening via those platforms... Why not leave us a rating? Five stars, of course, as this really helps other people to find our podcast. Before we bid farewell, just time to say a few thanks. Thank you, as always, to our superb guests. Ken, Paul and Andrew, thank you for giving up your time to join us. Thank you also to our producer, Simon Gash, for slicing and crimping all of these episodes into a delicious download. Thank you to the elusive band nerds for their excellent contributions towards the band mastermind trivia. And finally, thank you to you. Wherever you are, thanks for sharing the time with us. Goodbye and God bless. <laughs>